Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Chesney Hawks' cover of Gene Vincent's Say Mama was only included on the CD version of the Buddy Song soundtrack. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is writer and podcaster Sophie Davis. Sophie, what you're to, where can we find it? I'm writing and podcasting about TV, and you can find me on Twitter at It's Sophie Davis. Okay, well, I should say that there's a neat link into your first choice in the fact that one of your podcasts is a brilliant It's an S-Pod thing about the S-Club 7 TV series, which is obviously a big success, but lots of people try to jump on that bandwagon, not quite as well, including this lot. Star Street starring All Stars, a virtually forgotten early 2000s band. Sophie, who were they and what was this? All Stars were a short-lived British pop group who had their own children's TV show called Star Street, where they were playing sort of fictionalised versions of themselves, living in a house together. And I remember their house was like some sort of mad Wallace and Gromit creation where they had machines that would dress them and make breakfast for them and they never seemed to have stairs they would always be moving around the house via slides and poles and things like that and I mean according to Wikipedia the band was active from 2001 to 2002 (laughs) so not very long but in that time they managed to release one album which reached number 43 in the UK chart and they also had two series of this TV show. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in 1999, this exciting new band called S Club 7 were launched with their own TV show on CBBC. And then only a year or two later, there's suddenly this other new band launching with their own show on CITV. But obviously, whereas S Club 7 became huge off the back of their show for a good few years, All Stars just never really took off in the same way. And if anything, the show seemed to be a bit more successful than their music efforts in the charts. Yeah, the really weird thing is, whereas with S Club 7, I know they've not all had stellar careers afterwards, and one in particular really, really kind of torpedoed their own career. But they've been Mm -hmm. visible to an extent to which this lot weren't afterwards. There's only a couple of them that really seem to do anything else there's Ashley Taylor who I think he was an actor before he was in this but he's been in some quite good things since including Northern Soul the film from about five years ago which is a really good bleak drama about kind of the Wigan Casino and all the Northern Soul scene but also I think I'm saying this right Valiazuki who was in that a 
appalling Channel 4 thing, Balls of Steel, the hidden camera show. Yeah. She was the bunny boiler in that, which is one of the most reprehensible things in it. She's <laughs> apparently on Big Brother pretending to be an Australian to fool the other contestants. And she seems to be on every BBC Three and E4 thing going around 2007 and has since disappeared. So what happened to all of them? Yeah, looking at what they're up to now, I think it's quite telling that they've all gone on to do more acting work than music like i think one of them was in hollyoaks one of them was in family affairs as you said one of them was the bunny boiler in balls of steel which i unfortunately used to watch sometimes when i was in school but i had no recollection of her being in all stars at the time apparently one of them is married to dom from dick and dom now really yeah found that online somewhere i can't remember which one it is one of the blonde girls but it, it kind of it shows what you latch on to when you're a kid because i think tech Technically, you know, watching it the other day for the first time in ages, technically, I think the acting in Star Street is a lot better than the acting in S Club 7's show ever was. But obviously, when you're a child, you don't really have any grasp of that. You don't really know what good acting or bad acting is. So it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. It's sort of more about like the music and the brand than I guess the acting because this Star Street show it's almost like a cross between S Club 7's show and like the tweenies or something it's very kind of colourful and childish and whenever they burst into song it's very kind of like let's sing a song children like it seems like even a younger demographic than S Club 7 it almost makes S Club 7 look quite cool and adult in comparison which I wasn't expecting the thing I felt really didn't work about it though was like you say the fact that all live in one house which you know they keep going for that in fictionalized shows about bands and it all goes back to obviously the beatles in help and the monkeys and really i think both of those were rooted in something that was actually contextual at the time that you know a lot of bands it was the case that they all trekked up from well liverpool to london or wherever the various monkeys were from probably la to somewhere else in la but you know they all lived together to because it was more convenient to rehearse and you know share traveling costs and so on whereas when you came to things like manufactured bands like i mean these were manufactured let's be honest about it it never really rang true that they would all live in the same day i mean even in s club seven in miami seven and Dallas seven they do live together but you don't really see that that often yeah and that's basically all all stars is because i think it's a bit confusing that in the context of the show they don't actually seem to be a band they're just like a group of people living together in a mad house and they occasionally burst into song once per episode. Like, there's no context that they're a band. And maybe that was a bit confusing for people as well. Maybe that's why they didn't sell so many singles and albums, because nobody actually realised they were a band. They just thought it was a sort of musical TV show. But I think that is one big difference, actually, because no matter what you know people might say about S Club 7's music, I think a lot of their songs are very catchy, well-made pop songs. Like, one of their main songwriters was Kathy Day. Dennis, who's written loads of big hits over the years for people like Kylie and Britney and Katy Perry and people like that. Whereas I think a lot of All Stars music was just forgettable. They just didn't really put the effort in. Like two of their singles were cover versions. One was of Bucks Fizz's The Land of Make Believe and the other was Duran Duran's Is There Something I Should Know? I didn't know that existed till <laughs> earlier today and that is, there is no excuse for that, really. <laughs> I'm not even that precious about the original, but it's it's an ordeal to listen to. 
But one of their songs that I do remember quite well is Things That Go Bump in the Night, which was a sort of Halloween song. It was apparently in the soundtrack for the 2002 Scooby-Doo movie. And I'm not sure if I remember it well because it's actually a well-known song or if it's because I used to go to a dance school when I was younger and we actually did a dance in a show to that song at some point. So I'm not sure if my memory is sort of confused like, is this a well-known song or do I just remember it because I had to do a dance to it in a sort of haunted house? That was apparently written by Peter Kunar out of DV, who obviously wrote Things Could Only Get Better, which mm. uh, has slightly a mixed legacy as a song, should we say. But, you know, he had proper pop credentials and he seems to have written a few of the tracks. And yet, like you say, they didn't really make much impact musically at all. I think they might have scraped the top 20 a couple of times, but that was probably down to that confusion you mentioned, that people not quite understanding they were a real band at the same time as being in a sitcom. Yeah, and the fact that the songs just aren't particularly <laughs> memorable. I also feel like we should mention the really obnoxious way that their name is written, because it's like all in small letters, stars in capital letters, and then a star symbol at the end. Just why why did they do that what was that in the wake of i mean not only did you have five spelling the name five i there's also hearsay mm. with the apostrophe in and i think part of that might have been capitalized initially and then they quickly dropped that so was it just thinking oh that's popular we'll do that whereas it wasn't actually popular at all it was just some people had done it with some bands that were successful yeah maybe it was some sort of trend at the time because they do they look like the most early 2000s band imaginable like the girls in particular look like sort of claire's accessories personified and like i said before they were part of the soundtrack for scooby-doo and apparently they were also in the soundtrack for the film thunder pants which i had completely forgotten about but i remembered that i actually went to the cinema to see that with a friend and that was also 2002 so 2002 was clearly a big year for this band and then they just broke up for some reason yeah everything you can find about them is quite vehement in saying they broke up not they didn't do that well and either the series was cancelled or their record contract was terminated. They broke up. Apparently they actually did say we don't want to do this mm. anymore. There's a story there. I know there is. But there's very little evidence of them ever having existed out there. I mean, apparently the show was popular enough at the time to come out on VHS. And that was the, mm. the last days of VHS. They probably weren't putting out just anything at that point. So it must have been reasonably popular and there's very little you can find about it now. Yeah, I read somewhere that Series 1 was initially shown as part of SMTV Live and then it was sort of repeated on CITV and then they did Series 2. And I don't have any memory of that, to be honest, although I did religiously watch SMTV Live. So that might be why I came across it to begin with. So, yeah, a lot of people probably did watch it at the time because I'm sure that had big viewing figures. But, yeah, it's just been sort of forgotten and and all of the band do have wikipedia pages i think but mostly it's about their acting work since then not about the fact that they're former pop stars so did you actually own the album and more to the point do you still own it i don't think i did i was thinking about this before and i don't think i did own the album but like we were saying before i probably wasn't aware they were a real band or i just had no real interest beyond watching them living in this weird sort of teletubbies-esque house on citv and i remember there was one episode where they all sort of went 
went down the back of the sofa and it was like a whole world down there. It was quite surreal in comparison to S Club 7's show. OK, well, moving on to your next choice now. And while I can find barely anything of All Stars or Star Street, there is all too much of this online. To my new home and to free them from that dirty old man. <laughs> Freedom! Oh, my God. Oh, my God, she's here. <clears throat> Do come in, my darling. The door is open. <laughs> Hello, Harold. OK, that was Ian Lee and Mackenzie Crook. They won't appreciate being reminded of this, doing Albert and Harold Steptoe on the All-Star Impression Show. Sophie, what was going on here? Well, first of all, thank you for giving me an outlet to talk about this, because I could talk for an hour just about this one thing. This was a one-off ITV special from 2009, and it's possibly the maddest, most excruciating thing I've ever seen on TV. It's basically celebrities doing impressions of other celebrities, and it's a big variety show sort of thing with a studio audience hosted by Stephen Mulhern, of course. And apparently it aired on Boxing Day, and I don't really remember that context of it at all. I just remember watching it at the time, thinking it was insane. And then in the years since, I've occasionally thought to myself, was that was that some sort of fever dream? Did, did that actually happen? Because the whole thing is just baffling for so many reasons you know as you've already alluded to the range of celebrities they've got involved some of them are the sort of people you might expect to see on something like this like for example les dennis bobby davro paul daniels claire sweeney they're all there but then there's also people like mackenzie crook and ian lee showing up a step toe and son jerry hall doing an incredibly loose impression of katie price with what sounds like an australian accent it's just so not an impression whatsoever and there's also like a little skit about the sugar babes lineup changing all the time with vanessa feltz and diane abbott Every second of it is so mind-boggling. At one point, JLS show up to just perform one of their hit songs, and it has no relevance to anything. There are no impressions involved. They just sing a song, and afterwards, Stephen Mulhern just sort of turns to one of them and goes, oh, I've been told you can do a good impression. And this poor guy, I don't know the names of JLS, but this poor guy just looks terrified, like he's been really put on the spot. And he says something in a just, like a just sort of a non-accent. It sounds sort of Jamaican. And then Stephen Mulhern goes to the audience, who was that? And about two people go, Louis Walsh. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't sound like Louis Walsh at all. It's uh, it, I could go on and on about this. There's also this guy called Stevie Ricks who keeps popping up every now and again as various characters like Russell Brand and Paul O'Grady. But he isn't a celebrity. He's a proper impressionist. And when he first shows up, Stephen Mulhern introduces him to the audience and is like, oh, this is a brand new face who you're certainly going to be seeing more of in the future. And according to his IMDb page, 
he has not been on TV since. <laughs> he seems to be very active on YouTube, but this did not kick off a big TV career for him. And it's just so bizarre. He just keeps popping up like, oh, he's a star of the future. Never seen him since. Well, there's a couple of things that struck me about him. I mean, first of all, as you say, there's JLS appearing, quote, as themselves. That's what they're billed as. Now, it just made me think of the way, you know, the impressionist everyone thinks of probably is Mike Yarwood, who obviously was a massive star in the 70s into the early 80s, where, you know, we do a show where he'd do Harold Wilson and Prince Charles and so on. And then at the end, he'd say, and now this is me and sing a song just as himself. And JLS was basically saying, and now this is us without doing impressions first. It misunderstood the whole Mike Yorwood show. But the two things that really stood out to me were, first of all, the range of attitude in the people involved. There were some people that clearly thought they were great impressionists when they weren't. And there were other people like, I would say Paul Daniels, who clearly just thought, that sounds like a laugh. I might make myself look a bit stupid, but you know what? It's a bit of fun. And the two just jar really badly with each other. Yeah, it's such a bizarre range of people. I did like a thread on Twitter about this a while ago because I decided to watch it on YouTube for the first time since 2009. And I did a few tweets and someone actually like copied in Ian Lee, I think, and was like, why did you do this? And he said something like Bob Mortimer asked him to do it because I think Bob Mortimer's wife was one of the producers on it or or possibly Bob was. When you think about it like that, it kind of makes sense that maybe like Reeves and Mortimer put this together because it does seem like a sketch (laughs) that they would do. That makes a bit more sense to me. But the fact that it was a sort of Boxing Day ITV Prime time show it's just so baffling and i'd be interested to know if anyone listening remembers watching this because obviously a lot of people must have it was primetime itv but i've never heard anyone talk about it in the last 10 years well i don't remember it at all but the mention of bob mortimer was interesting because that brings me around to my second point which was that people never seem to get that it isn't enough just to look and sound like somebody you have to get their mannerisms in a funny way and i think that's why people like bob mortimer's impression so much because he doesn't try to replicate the person. He hones in on something like the way Noel Edmonds will go, oh, it's not a cock-up, is it? I hate them. Oh, no. Just the exaggerated bits of them. But when people just do the voice and vaguely do the look and expect people to laugh, I just never found that funny. You know, it's a bit like, you know, when you're a kid and somebody would say, look, listen, who am I? I'm Prince Charles. I'm Prince Charles. It's kind of on that level, really. There's no art behind it. And that's why people like <laughs> Alistair McGowan and Ronnie Ancona were successful, because they actually were able to turn it into a, you know, a comic force, really. Whereas this is just people mimicking voices, and that isn't very funny, really. Yeah, just doing the voice isn't funny enough. The material has to actually be funny or, you know, a different take on something. And it is just like you've invited a load of relatives around and they're playing some sort of game where they have to impersonate people and your, your auntie's had a bit too much to drink. And it's just so bizarre. I think one of my favourite bits is the finale where, you know, it's the big ending to the show. They've got a lineup of various people singing It's Not Unusual as Tom Jones. And then suddenly, about halfway through the song, the doors open at the back of the stage. And for a moment, you kind of think, oh, is this going to be Tom Jones? Because that would make sense. You know, they're all impersonating Tom Jones. It would be a nice little surprise if Tom Jones suddenly appeared and joined in. But it's not Tom Jones. It's David Guest. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
And Stephen Mulhern sort of turns to the audience and goes, David Guest, ladies and gentlemen. Like, he's the massive guest they've saved for the end of the night. And he comes on. He's also dressed as Tom Jones. He's got an awful, well, I hope it's a wig. He's got an awful wig on. He joins in with the song and absolutely murders it. It's just, it's one of the funniest things. I've got a video of it on my phone. I just watch it occasionally because it just makes me cry laughing every time. It's just David Guest absolutely murdering this song. And JLS come back on in that that performance as well, because why not? They just come on and dance around at the back a little bit. Well, that again was really weird because David Guest, I mean, you know, there was that weird phase before when he was on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, people really realised he was actually quite a nice guy quite a funny guy which in a bizarre situation i later met him in a takeaway confirmed he was exactly like that in real life but you know when he first started because he'd show up alongside Liza Minnelli on things like Graham Norton's show and he wasn't really allowed to be himself or you know talk that much and he seemed really weird and I remember before he knew his name was thinking of him as that bloke who looks like somebody's drawn Tom Jones's face on a balloon and blown it up <laughs> which he did look so the fact he's doing Tom Jones was just ridiculous ridiculous to me really maybe that was the thinking behind it they thought who can we bring on in the finale tom jones no well or maybe tom jones said no and they thought who's the next best thing who slightly looks like tom jones (laughs) though the thing that really depressed me about it was because when i started watching it just to see what i could pick out for a clip i could not stop watching the whole thing it is beyond description but it's absolutely compelling but one bit just made my heart absolutely sink which is chris Christopher Biggins does Boris Johnson. Now, I know we're supposed to think of him as a national treasure and all that, but watching that so many years later, he did think, mate, it was things like that that's led us to where we are now. I was kind of it a was bit, Biggins bit angry all at Biggins along. in retrospect. He lost all his rent ghost points with me there. Yeah, we can blame Biggins for everything now. OK, well, moving on to your next choice now, which is something that, and I never thought I'd say this, actually looks sane and rational in comparison to the All-Star Impression show. This is the Black Planet. Well, the light side of it. There is a dark side, but it's on the other side. (laughs) You're about to witness the struggle between the light and the dark. The very greens who live here in this green and pleasant land, and the cruds who don't. We'll come to them later. Okay, that was a bit of narration from Insect Doors, a French-Canadian animated series that I think was on Channel 4 around 1994-95. Sophie, tell us more about this. This is a computer-animated show about a community of insects which are divided into two groups. So on the one side, you have the very greens, who are all the sort of colourful bugs like butterflies. And then on the other side, you have the cruds, who are all the sort of less attractive bugs like wood lice and beetles. So it's a kind of goodies and baddies situation. And I remember watching it on TV and I also had various episodes on video as well. And I think that's why I remember it so well, because I used to watch certain episodes over and over again. And I didn't realise this at the time, but now having looked it up, as you said before, I know it's a French programme originally, which then got an American dub and a British dub. And apparently the American dub basically stuck to the script of the original. But for the British dub, 
they pretty much rewrote all of the dialogue I now know. And they also gave all of the bugs all these different sort of regional accents from around the UK, which I always enjoyed. Like I watched a few episodes on YouTube last night and there's a bit where one of the bugs calls another bug a softy southerner, which obviously is not from the original French. I think they've pretty much changed every line. I actually watched a bit of the American dub last night because I'd never seen it before. I didn't even know it existed. And it was incredibly irritating. It was really sort of cheesy dialogue. It felt like there was no humour in it, whereas the British version is pretty much all humour. So I, I really respect the fact that they changed it all now. You know, they changed every line to actually make it work for a UK audience. And they had like a Welsh bug and a Scottish bug. There's a Scouser and a Brummy and all sorts of different accents going on. Yeah, you wonder what the thinking was behind that, because it wasn't like they didn't have the original scripts to hand, because obviously they'd done the American dub at the same time. What? Why did they think, other than possibly thinking things like the magic roundabout monkey, where they just did away with translating them and the narrator just made up what they thought was going on, which again, were, you know, founded on humour where there wasn't humour in the original shows. But why did they do it? Nowhere seems to give any indication of what the thinking was there. Yeah, and I couldn't find any information on who actually did it, you know, like who the writers were or anything like that. Because, I mean, even in comparison with the cast, the British cast is tiny in comparison to the French cast and the American cast. There's only four names on Wikipedia. Two of them are a married couple. It's Andy Seacombe and Caroline Bliss, who was Miss Moneypenny in the Dalton Bond films. And then there's two guys called Teddy Kempner and Neil McCall. And that's it. They were just doing all the characters between the four of them, it seems. But there's no real mention of who was actually working on the script and changing it all, because I think they did a pretty good job. I think it actually still holds up quite well today, having watched it the other night. Obviously, the animation is quite dated. It isn't unwatchably bad. The episodes are only short. They're only about sort of 10, 12 minutes. So short and sweet, quite fun little stories. I think some of the jokes still hold up. Um, I'm quite I'm quite pleased with it. Well, I really enjoyed the couple of episodes that I watched because I was expecting, because I really didn't know it as anything beyond a title at the top of a page in TV Quick where it didn't say, didn't even mm-hmm. say puppet fun in that part of the listing. It said nothing at all about the programmes that were right up there. But I just assumed it was kind of like a Transformer Zoids thing, you know, with like insects that turn into other insects, but robotic or that sort of thing. It's not a t- all is it it's like a very charming stylized obviously it is early computer animation and some of the renderings don't look as impressive now as they probably did at the time but it's so different to what you'd expect from it like you say the humor is really what carries it it's so tongue-in-cheek and although there's quite a you know an epic story at the heart of it they don't actually take that very seriously yeah i think it's very fun there's a sort of there's obviously a rivalry between these two different groups of insects the cruds have a machine called the crudopod which can turn a very green into a crud so that was always there as a kind of threat and i always thought that would make quite a good toy if you had a crudopod you could sort of put a bug in and it would change color i'm going to prototype that uh and then also the very greens have this thing called a, a musical color gun which is like a guitar that can fire pollen and that can do the reverse that can turn a crud into a very green and it sort of makes them go all silly and so there was always this sort of rivalry going on but it's never taken too seriously the soldiers on the crud side are sort of 
of oafs, really. And they're ruled over by this villain called Queen Catheter for some reason. I didn't know what that word meant when I was a child. I think I probably learned it from this show because I probably asked my parents what it meant. But she's got a son, the prince, who's actually nice. And he befriends some of the very greens and is then sort of torn between these two sides. I guess a sort of proto Kylo Ren in some ways. <laughs> so it had all these little ongoing stories. But then, yeah, little short, sharp 10 minute episodes. Watching it last night, I felt I felt very sort of warm and cozy. And I, I was relieved to see that it was still quite good. And I sent a few videos to my parents as well, because they used to enjoy it as well. They particularly enjoyed the bug that has a really strong Welsh accent. Linking back to All Stars as well, I did notice that apparently there was a weird capitalisation for insect doors as well, which is, I'm led to believe, if Wikipedia is correct, it's lowercase I-N-S-E, capital K, lowercase T-O-R, capital S, with or without an exclamation mark nobody seems to be quite sure <laughs> yeah i think on the kind of logo the k was like a big thing in the middle so that makes sense i didn't notice that to be honest it wasn't as obnoxious as the uh, star symbol in all stars so it, i just sort of it went over my head really okay we're well, moving on to your next choice now which is a show that really possibly could have done with a humorous english language redubbing i might be being a bit harsh on it there but we'll find out in a minute <sighs> Please, I must ask you to stop murmuring. <laughs> Hello there. Hello there. Murmuring! <laughs> now, I want you to walk towards me and salute your superior officer. Okay, that was Jonathan Price as Dr. Victor Blenkinsop unveiling his latest creation in Clone, a BBC3 sitcom from 2008. Sophie, is this as bad as I remember it? Well, I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen it since it originally aired, and it seems impossible to find online. But if I remember correctly, it was pretty awful. And I think all of the reviews and the audience response at the time reflected that. For anyone who doesn't remember this, it was a short-lived BBC sitcom from 2008 which was cancelled after one series and it stars bizarrely Jonathan Price as a scientist who's created the first human clone and the idea is that the clone was intended to be this sort of a super soldier but something has gone wrong and it's turned out a bit rubbish so Jonathan Price goes on the run with this clone because it's a failure and the military want to destroy it and the military are sort of led by Mark Gatiss as a guy called Colonel Black and hilarity ensues or or rather it doesn't yeah there's quite a long history of BBC3 comedy shows that did not work and in fact we might be coming back to one later but BBC3 it was a good testing ground I think it scored a lot of hits with things like Gavin and Stacey Torchwood Being Human Ideal which I loved Orphan Black Mighty Boost Little Britain but on the other hand you did get all the stuff that's now forgotten like Horn and Corden Crodman Doon mm. what was it Crodman Doon and the Flaming Sword of Flaming Sword of Fire, fire. yeah and this, things like this as well, where I'm going to be fair to this. My memory of it is that I think it was something where there was a good idea at the heart of it. I think there was just too much interference down the line. Because if I remember rightly, wasn't it shot, not even like a film, like a BBC3 drama, it looked like being human or tortured or something. And yet it had the studio audience laughing at it. 
And the two things were like, it was like playing two albums, two different albums at the same time. It just felt like two yeah. different things on the screen. I don't think that helped. Apparently, BBC Three just said no to a second series. And there were hints out there that Mark Catus had said, well, there might be a film of it. I think it's more likely, <laughs> probably what he said was something like, well, if we get another go at it, it'd probably make a good film if we took a different approach. I don't think anyone was angling for a big screen version of it on that form either. But I think it was just something that just probably got lost in endless kind of tone meetings and so on. Yeah, I read that Mark Gatiss quote and I thought, what was he smoking? <laughs> if he's suggesting a film. But it, yeah, it was created by Adam Chase, who was a writer and producer on Friends. And apparently he said he brought Clone to the UK because he thought that the idea of a sci-fi comedy was a bit too radical for the US. Not sure if that's the case or whether it just sort of maybe got turned down. We'll probably never know. But also the director was American, a guy called Rob Schiller, who seems to have directed a lot of these big studio audience sitcoms in the US. And they also had a team of writers like an American show would. So it's all very unusual, like (laughs) a load of Americans coming over and making a show on BBC Three which looked very low budget. It was It's quite surreal seeing Jonathan Price in a sort of silly, cheap-looking BBC Three sitcom. He seems really out of place. And if I remember rightly, he's the sort of straight man character. So he doesn't really even get much of a chance to be funny. I think I remember Mark Gatiss was really sort of hamming it up, you know, doing his best sort of, you know, villain. But I think it was the script. Well, not even the script, to be honest. I think one of the big issues was the actual clone himself because he was more sort of irritating than endearing, you know, because he was supposed to be this sort of innocent, childlike character. But I think most people just found him really annoying. And I looked up the actor because he didn't have many TV credits before this, and he hasn't had many afterwards either. But I I went on his Twitter, and he seems to do a lot of theatre. So I think maybe the experience might have, you know, put him off TV or something, or maybe it was a sort of black mark on his CV or something like that that was my memory of it was they were all acting like they were in different programs i mean i wonder if jonathan price was got in because of brazil and he's playing it quite straight like you say he was a straight man in it he's not quite doing you know serious acting but there isn't much playing it for laughs mark gatiss is playing like you say a kind of a comedy military not even a villain but the kind like of a doctor evil sort really of thing. Well. Yes, yeah. And the clone just seemed to be... It's like a, a zany character in a soap opera, I thought. It was like a load of different programmes mashed together. And I think that's reflected in... You mentioned the writer's room. I mean, it's really hard to find out who the writers on this are, which in itself is telling. I had to go really deep into IMDb and look it up by their individual pages rather than the programme. But the people who worked on it are all really good writers. There's some people that have worked on really good UK comedy shows. There's one of the community writers, not one of the main ones, but, you know, someone who worked on community crying out loud. And between them, they just couldn't get this right. And I hear a lot of stories about BBC Three, about how ideas got mangled, you know, going through various committees who thought they knew better than the people writing and acting and directing and so on. 
And I can only assume that's what happened here because you don't have that much talent involved and that decent an idea and have it just miss the mark like this. Yeah, when I was looking it up the other day, I, I stumbled across a sort of com- a conversation on the British Comedy Guide forum where before Clone had actually started airing, someone was talking about how they'd been in the studio audience. And apparently, even just from that, they were saying, this doesn't look good. Half the audience left before it was over. Apparently, they were taking lots of time to kind of set up you know, various bits of technology. Because as you said before, it was like a combination of, you know, some kind of techie show like Humans and a comedy. But obviously when they tried to film that with the studio audience, it took ages to kind of set up a special effect or something. You know, I think maybe Red Dwarf got it right going kind of low tech because you can just film with an audience and you can just get on with it rather than trying to set up fancy effects all the time and sort of losing the laughs. And it is quite telling that this is a perfect example of the fact that, you know, despite what people might think, nobody ever sets out to make something bad or make something that doesn't work. I always think of that really haunting bit on the Adam and Joe DVD where they're talking about, they did the pilot called, I think it was called Adam and Joe's Television Show, which is a bit like a kind of TV burp thing ahead of its time. In about 1999, I think, and it never went to a series. It was a bit where Adam finds a comedy forum online where somebody's saying, I've seen this pilot, they've just done it, it's terrible, and this, that, and the other. And he just looks really depressed, and he says, well, you know, we know it's not worked. What do I do? Do I let this stay out there and have people think that, you know, we're intending to go ahead with an idea that hasn't worked as our next show? Or do I have a go at him and risk looking just as <laughs> bad? And the dilemma that, you know, they hadn't thought, let's make this bad pilot off the back of our really mm-hmm. successful show. It just turned out that way. Sometimes it just does. And I do feel a bit sorry for everyone involved in this because you can't say they weren't trying. Yeah, definitely. And When I was a teenager, I went through a phase of watching pretty much every new comedy that aired on British TV. And for some reason, if it was bad, I would just carry on watching it anyway and just watch the whole series. You know, obviously, this was a time before Netflix we weren't sort of inundated with huge amounts of TV to watch I just started watching a series and thought well I don't like it but I'm gonna watch all six episodes anyway so the upshot is that I've seen lots of sitcoms from around sort of 2007 to 2010 that only ran for one series and not many other people remember. So there's Clone, there's, you know, The Persuasionists, which I think has become a bit a bit more of a well-known flop because Adam Buxton has talked about it on his podcast and about what a disaster that was. I remember watching Campus on Channel 4, created by Victoria Pyle of Greenwing, that only lasted one series. I don't know, if do you remember a really awful ITV sitcom called Teenage Kicks? I where Aid Edmondson yeah. is, is a sort of punk dad who has to move in with his adult children. I think he might, was he, did he write it as well, possibly? I remember that being terrible, but I just watched all of it, maybe out of some sort of morbid curiosity. Maybe that's formed my personality, because I do have a podcast about the S Club 7 TV show, so maybe that's where it started, a sort of fascination with compellingly bad TV. It is quite a thing, or it used to be quite a thing with comedies, because I remember watching things in full, like High Stakes, that Richard Wilson sitcom. I watched all of that, even though I knew it was terrible. Loads of things in the 80s that you know they were forever giving minor players in the alternative comedy scene their own sitcom which didn't work 
But I just felt compelled to watch all of them because there's something quite charming about something that just doesn't get it quite right. That You know, if it really was absolutely terrible, you wouldn't watch all of it. But there's something very, very kind of heartwarming about something that its heart's in the right place, just its jokes aren't. Yeah, as you said before, nobody really sets out to make something bad. And it's quite interesting to watch something and just kind of think, how did this end up like this? Like, you know, with the persuasionists, it went through so many different pilots and casts and versions of the script. I think Ian Lee was involved from the very beginning, but the cast just changed around him with every pilot. It's just such a fascinating show to me. Okay, well, we might be coming back to BBC Three in a second. Well, I know we are. Let's be honest about that. I'm the presenter (laughs) after all. But for your next choice, we're just having a bit of a literary diversion. But that's if the writer of it will actually allow us to. You've not been very complimentary about historians in the past, have you? Uh, uh, No, no. The short answer is no. Why not? Why did you like historians? Because uh, you are one yourself. No, I'm not. No, I'm a children's author. Horrible histories are uh, popular because I'm not a historian. Mm. I don't lecture at you. I say, cool, you'll never guess what I found out about this. Mm. Uh, historians tend to reinvent history to sell books, and they come up with something new and sensational. Or, re- or reinterpret. Reinvent them. All right. Would, say? They're given a thousand facts, and they pick a hundred which support their particular argument. Not the other 900. They're ignored. And uh, so that makes them a little bit devious, I think is my word. Okay, that was a clip of writer Terry Deary on BBC Breakfast a couple of years ago, giving his views on historians. We'll be hearing more about him in a second. Sophie, why have I got him there? I was really fond of a book called The Grot Street Gang when I was younger. It's a children's book by Terry Deary that I remember being very attached to when I was in primary school. I always used to read a lot, and I think some of the books I read were the sort of things that lots of other kids my age were reading reading as well, like Jacqueline Wilson, Louise Renison, all those sorts of authors. But The Grot Street Gang is something I remember being obsessed with and nobody else ever knew what I was talking about. And if you look it up online now, there isn't really that much information about it. You can sort of buy a used copy, but other than just the little blurb, it's difficult to find any other information about it. Yeah, absolutely nothing about it. It took me quite a while to find out who the publisher was. Apparently it's Hippo Humour. And also, that, like I say, it was written by Terry Deary, who later went on to create Horrible Histories. But it's not even listed on his wikipedia page it's just in yeah. his writer credits on amazon now let's just get this out of the way he is quite an eccentric man in the last couple of years he said very bizarre things about why he thinks libraries should be abolished okay i wasn't aware of that. yeah there were some strange arguments about you wouldn't get a porsche from a car library or something like that he also thinks school should be abolished because he doesn't like school they are brain-bending arguments but I would contend they clearly turned him into the very good writer he is. So it's a very difficult thing to weigh up because whatever we may think of those strange takes, that they clearly gave him the impetus to create things like Horrible Histories and this, which are from quite an unusual take about education. Because this is about a rampaging school gang, isn't it? About revenge on the teacher. Yeah, it's about a group of school kids and they're trying to get revenge on this teacher because she's given one of them detention. I don't think there was any more to it than that. But they come up with all these sort of different ideas. One is that they're going to put a poisoned pin on her chair so then she'll sit on it and she'll die it's quite yeah it's quite dark and then it sort of escalates to them stealing a gorilla from a zoo and (laughs) doing a bit of a swap 
there are some not very nice things in the book about the teacher's appearance and they basically do a swap so they make their teacher appear to be a gorilla and then they dress up the gorilla in the sort of teacher's clothes and take it to school and hope that no one will notice but yeah when I was thinking about what to put on my list for this podcast I was thinking about books and my first thought was the Grot Street Gang so then I texted my parents and I said to them do you remember any books I used to like that were quite unusual and not really popular with other kids. And they immediately replied with The Grot Street Gang by Terry Deary. So this was a (laughs) unanimous decision. And they actually found my copy of it in the house and sent me a few photos of pages. So they sort of, uh, you know, jogged some memories for me. And I remember, I think what I liked so much about it is because it was very much a comedy book. Like there's a, a lot of pictures as well as the text. And there's a character, for example, whose surname is Who, and another character whose surname is What. So I'm sure you can predict there's all sorts of hilarious misunderstandings, like someone's telling them off and says, who did this? And the kid called who is like, no, I didn't. And it's all that sort of thing, you know, back and forth. And that was like the height of comedy for me when I was younger. And that's why I read the book over and over again, because I thought it was really funny. I think one of the reasons that it didn't take off, because, you know, it clearly made an impression on you. And everywhere you look online, like Goodreads and so on, it has five star reviews from people who've read it. I think it's simply that it probably came out, because I think it came out in 1991. And that was probably, times were changing from, there was that big things throughout the 80s of books that were very similar to this with similarly cartoony eye-catching covers like the Marmalade Atkins series, Super Grand, The Kids Guide and so on that were big business throughout the 80s and then you know kids tastes change and they must have been changing by the early 90s and I'm not sure what books were coming in for kids around then but they must have been slightly different and probably this just felt like maybe like yesterday's news in a way because it was promoted in more or less the same way as all of those 80s hit books so it might have felt like a bit like a relic from the past really yeah and i suppose thinking about it now it's a little bit like sort of you know the beano like that sort of thing now that i think about it and yeah it's on the front cover it's got this banner that says young hippo school which seems to be i mean this took some digging but it seems to be a collection of books by different authors all under this one banner and i don't think i ever had any of the others i didn't recognize them so i'm not sure what young hippo school was but did you say the publisher had the the word hippo in its name or something apparently yes yeah as far as i can Mm. tell it's difficult like you say to find out any details proper details about this at all but it does appear to be (laughs) hippo humor was the imprint but yeah looking at some of the other pages that my parents sent me there are sort of introductions to all the different kids in the gang the leader of the group is a girl called nancy clog who wants to play football for england and also be miss world so she you know she wants to have it all and there's all these little gags like oh someone has a brain like albert einstein dead for nearly 40 years and as i was looking at these pages i was thinking i remember this so well because i must have read this book so many times later in the book there's a, a picture of a newspaper front page about the gorilla disappearing from the zoo there's a quote from the zookeeper saying an idiot must have let her out and then it says mr n idiot of duckpool high street is quoted <laughs> as saying no i never like there's a lot of like puns and things like that 
jokes. Well, those sort of jokes are great because they don't talk down to kids. They're actually a more palatable version of what you would have found if you pulled a book, you know, a humor book off your dad's bookshelf and not quite understood what was in it. Understood the rhythm of the gags and so on. And that's kind of like a child-friendly distillation of all of that, really. The sort of thing you'd see in Private Eye, where you'd not know why you were laughing at something about Michael Foote or something, but <laughs> it's got very much that tenor to it, I think. Yeah, definitely. It made me feel so sad, though, because when my parents found my copy of the book, they also found my sort of school book diary, where every week we had to write about a book we were reading and draw a picture for the teacher. And there's one entry where I say that I've read at least 20 books over the Easter holidays. And I mean, now, I don't think I've read 20 books in the last six years. It made me feel so unproductive. Are you looking to read this again, though? Well, it might be quite a quick read. My parents have got it at home, so maybe next time I go home I'll have to flick through it. Okay, well I'm also wondering if you're going to think about revisiting your last choice, because I haven't seen this since it was on, although I've got mixed memories of it. I now really want to see the whole thing again, but I'm sure most people listening won't remember what this was, but you're probably going to recognise this voice. about to see is a short piece I originally wrote for the theatre. It's a story, told in rock, about the nativity of Christ, and it ran upstairs at the Dublin Castle, London Camden, for a number of weeks. Now I thought it'd be rather interesting to tell my story from the point of view of the innkeeper, a man whom I always thought to be one of the more intriguing yet underexplored figures in this oft-recounted tale. In fact, one might immodestly call it the greatest story never told. Okay, that was very obviously Matt Berry doing the intro to ADBC, a rock opera. Now, Sophie, I remember this not quite working, but I'm wondering if you feel the same about it. I'm a big fan, to be honest. I didn't watch it when it originally aired like you did. I kind of came to it via being a big fan of The Mighty Boosh when I was a teenager. I think when I was about 16, 17 years old, I was a big fan of that. And that kind of led me to other things that the cast had been in, like this and also stuff like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, Nathan Barley, all those sorts of quite weird comedies from that time. But ADBC, a rock opera, is something from the very early days of BBC Three. It's quite difficult to describe. It's a one-off comedy special and it's essentially a spoof rock opera created by Matt Berry and Richard Ayoade, which is really specifically parodying the musical Jesus Christ Superstar and its 1970s film adaptation. I guess it's a Christmas special, really, because it did air on the 21st of December 2004. I don't think it's ever been repeated. It tells the story of the nativity from the point of view of the innkeeper, the main joke being that that's completely unnecessary because the innkeeper is like the least interesting part of the nativity story and we've got this incredible cast of sort of comedy stars who weren't really stars yet we've got matt berry as the innkeeper richard ayoade as joseph they wrote it and richard ayoade also directed it and then we've got julia davis as the innkeeper's wife Julian Barrett plays this sort of antagonist character called Tony Iscariot, 
who is like a rival innkeeper. And there's a little line that's sort of like, his son would go on to even greater infamy. But that's another story. <laughs> and then there's also appearances from people like Matt Lucas, Noel Fielding, all these big comedy names who were sort of on the rise at the time. Because for Matt Berry and Richard Iowadi, this was post Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, but it was very much pre the IT crowd. So they weren't hugely known yet because not many people actually watched Dark Place when it was originally on. And yeah, it's hard to imagine something like this getting commissioned now, is it? Well, yeah, and I'm wondering if my kind of mixed reaction to it at the time was because of the time it was broadcast. One thing that really bothers me about it is that, again, I think it wasn't down to the people behind it. I think this is interference that came in later on. But like you say, it's a very deliberate parody of there was a lot of this sort of stuff on the BBC in the 70s was things like great big groovy horse which occasionally every so often that comes around on twitter somebody linking to a youtube clip and saying oh my god what the hell was this which is always amusing to see that happen <laughs> things like follow the star there was orion which mitch ben chose when he was on looks unfamiliar all these things conceptually it's a really good sendable of those because that it begins with matt berry as the composer as we heard in that intro talk about yeah. when it was adapted but there's elements of it where there's jokes about deliberate problems with the production, with the broadcast, you know, with people not lip syncing correctly. And I kind of feel that didn't really happen in those sort of productions. In those days, they retook things on TV, you know, especially mm-hmm. if it was pre-recorded, if it wasn't live until they got it right. Around that time, that seemed to be a recurring thing as people say, ah, ha, 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 look, the sets all wobbled on TV years ago, which it didn't really. And I felt at the time, this may be why it got up my nose a bit, was that they had a bit of a nerve doing things like that. When, you know, frequently you watch Big Brother and you'd have Davina going for about three minutes and the number should be just coming up now. It should be, should be coming up now. Where's the number? Hello, does anyone know where the number has gone? And, you know, I don't really remember that happening when I was a kid, you know, when people said numbers had come up. That's why you remembered say if a number didn't come up on swap shop and no elevens would do a funny bit about the backroom boys always getting it wrong that sat badly with me but also i think some of the 70s references in it are a bit too slapped on and i don't think that's down to matt berry or richard iowadi because if you look at things like toast of london or iowadi on iowadi they know exactly how to do that how to pitch references I don't think it was them. I think it was somebody else involved in the production was kind of, oh, yeah, we need to have a lava lamp there. That's, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, maybe to make it a little bit more broad. Exactly. And that's why I really want to see it again now. It is quite hard to find, actually. And the DVD goes for an enormous amount. But I'd like to see it with a fresh perspective, really. Yeah, you should go back to it. But yeah, on one of my podcasts, I actually spoke to Stuart Murphy, who was the first commissioner of BBC Three. And I asked him about this because it's such a a curio. I was like, why did you commission this? (laughs) It seems like it happened because he had a sort of ongoing relationship with the production company Baby Cow, which was run by Steve Coogan and Henry Normal at the time. And so they would regularly pass scripts over to him, like Nighty Night was one of theirs. And this was just a sort of a script they gave to him and said, do you fancy doing this? And because BBC Three was new at the time, he was just kind of like, yeah, let's do this as a one-off. Why not? I'm, I'm sure it was probably quite cheap to make because they did it all in one studio. That's, I guess, 
part of the joke of it again you know it's not a big budget thing and yeah I, I get what you mean about the references you know to stuff being bad at the time it's kind of similar to Garth Marenghi's Dark Place in that way but I guess with Dark Place they had the excuse of it never actually aired because you know it was sort of lost tapes that was the idea so they could say oh it didn't actually air on TV because it was too bad but then with this it is supposed to be you know a sort of low budget thing that aired on maybe BBC4 in the 70s and also the thing that i can think of that not like it sort of structurally or in tone but the thing it reminds me of in terms of being on bbc4 as a one-off in that sort of time slot was did you ever see cricklewood greats no which was the thing peter capaldi did actually while he was doing doctor who and it was obvious that it was a pet project he'd had for a while where it was kind of an imagined alternate history of the British film industry in the glory days oh, with, you know, right. mocked up clips and so on. And I love that. And I'm wondering now if this wasn't too far from that in spirit and that maybe things had just improved because that, there wasn't much on TV to really like in 2004, <laughs> generally. You know, that there were a lot of very bad comedies, very bad dramas, very bad reality shows, and I think that just dragged people's attitudes down. So I remember seeing things like the IT crowd, the Peter Serafinowicz show, and thinking, wow, something good is on at last. And, you know, when the new Doctor Who came on and so on. So that probably clouded people's judgment as well. And maybe this would be held in much higher regard had it been maybe just the following year it had been on. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. It's it's only half an hour long as well. So it's a nice thing to watch at Christmas, I find. It's like a sort of weird Christmas tradition I have. You know, some people will watch like the, the Gavin and Stacey Christmas special or, or something a bit older and I'll watch ADBC, a rock opera. I just, it's so ridiculous. You know, there's all this sort of dramatic, screechy singing and holding really high notes for a really long, unnecessary time. And I love how specific it is as a parody in terms of Jesus Christ Superstar, because, I mean, there's a, a song in that where Jesus is sort of asking God why he has to die. And there's a montage of all these different images of Christ on the cross. And then in ADBC, there's an equivalent song where the innkeeper is sort of you know, singing about his problems. And then there's a montage of images of, like, B&Bs. It's just so <laughs> stupid and just sort of gleefully stupid, really. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't realise this, but Matt Berry does have a music career oh, alongside yeah. his acting career. I think he's recently released his, I think, eighth album. And so ADBC really nicely combines those two sides of him. And Richard Ayoade is also a surprisingly good singer. For some reason, when I first watched this, I just immediately assumed that it was someone else's voice dubbed in because it sounds so different from his speaking voice. But I've sort of looked into this over the years and never found any evidence that it isn't him. So I think it must just be him singing. And I just doubted him to begin with for some reason. Well well, it's interesting to mention that because I was going to mention that shortly before this was on, I actually went to see Matt Berry live in a really, really small club in Liverpool where he's playing to probably about 40, 50 people. But, you know, he really gave it his all. But he did the song that ended up in this along with things like he did some of his proper songs, the total weird kind of mishmash of all kinds of things. But the really bizarre thing was that in one of his original songs, 
there was a kind of a wah-wah guitar effect in it. And at this point, nobody knew he had this obsession with Ronnie Hazelhurst, the TV theme composer. And my friend that was with me, who's actually been on this previously, Stephen O'Brien, he nudged me and laughed and said, it's the sorry theme. And then immediately <laughs> afterwards, he did the sorry theme. And we were both, we were dumbstruck by it. We couldn't believe <laughs> that was happening. I think he's done a whole album of TV theme. He has. I've, got, I've actually, by coincidence, I've got that on my desk right in front of me at the moment. It's a great album. I've always said it's like i always hoped you know when you buy in a charity shop like an album of the whatever orchestra plays the tv themes you know like in the 70s or whatever yeah and they never sounded like you'd hope this sounds like you always hoped they did and so i love it i think it's a tremendous album right i'm gonna look that up because i've never listened to it i've never been that involved in his music career to be honest i've always been much more into the comedy so i'll have to sort of <laughs> i guess the tv the tv themes is a sort of gateway drug isn't it well i think we should play it with the sorry themes i leave you to look that up <laughs> sophie it's been brilliant thank you oh, thanks for inviting me on Heaven of the 8th to awesome doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.